I now ask you to turn in the scriptures to Galatians chapter 1. Last week, I began to teach through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and I mentioned that in terms of chronology, it's the first of Paul's letters in the Bible that he authored, along with many others. I think he wrote it within about 20 years, maybe even 18 years of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It was around 48 A.D. And I pointed out last week that it's very likely that he writes this letter in the chapter break of Luke's history between chapters 14 and 15 of Acts. So I I said last week, you know, in the chapter break, you might even want to jot a note in your Bible. It's likely here that Paul writes the letter to the Galatians. And those Galatian churches, of course, were in the cities of Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. Um, In the 17 or 18 years since Jesus rose again and ascended into heaven, Paul had been converted about a year after Christ's ascension. Um, In those 17 or so years, um, Paul had become a church leader in Syria, just north of Israel. And then he had been sent out on a one or two year church planting trip. You can read about in Acts 13 and 14. And he had risked his life along with Barnabas to plant several churches in southern Galatia. Many of the Christians in that region of southern Galatia had been converted out of Judaism. Because, of course, they were convinced based on the scriptures and the testimony of those who had seen Jesus that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, crucified, risen, returning. Paul wrote this letter to those young churches in South Galatia who, within a year or so of being planted, had been infiltrated with many Jews who wanted to downplay Christianity and strengthen Judaism. They began insisting that those who follow Jesus also follow the Jewish law and be circumcised. And Paul writes this letter to clarify the gospel. This letter has been called the battle for the gospel. Last week, we studied the first 10 verses of the letter and learned that there is one and only one gospel message and the church must not distort it. Today, Paul actually, in the passage we're studying, Paul explains from history that the gospel he preaches, which does not require any law to be added to it, is the one and only gospel from God. So I'm going to read from chapter 1, verse 11, through chapter 2, verse 10, and follow along as I do. I'm going to stop and at a few points make uh, explanation of what Paul is saying and why he's saying it. So, Paul's writing to these churches in southern Galatia, churches he had risked his life to plant, and he says, verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. And that is the main point through this entire section we're going to read. The message that Paul preaches, the one and only gospel message about Jesus, is not a message that humans invented. He didn't invent it. He's going to say none of the other apostles invented it. It's from God. It's not from man. 
And Paul now proves it with historical information. Verse 12. He says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. God revealed Jesus to Paul on the road to Damascus. He's referring to his conversion around AD 31. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And we learn from another writing of Paul a few years later from 2 Corinthians that when Paul went into Arabia, he went in preaching the gospel and he recounts in 2 Corinthians 11 that he was nearly arrested for preaching the gospel there in Arabia. What we know is that Paul didn't go to consult with the apostles in Jerusalem. He immediately began preaching the gospel that was revealed to him by God. That's his point. So, in the verses that we just read, that is Galatians 1 verses 11 to 17, Paul recounts his testimony and he reminds the Galatians that his message about Jesus originated on the day of his conversion when God revealed Jesus in a way to him that dramatically changed his life. The second facet of today's passage in the next few verses is where Paul reminds the Galatians that his message about Jesus wasn't something he learned from any other apostles in Jerusalem. It was independent of them. Starting in verse 18, he says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. And I remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I don't lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person or by face to the churches in Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it and said... He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. He's basically saying, I was dozens and dozens of miles away from the area of Judea around Jerusalem. And Paul says, basically no one in that area knew me by face. They had only heard about me. And they were saying, we've heard that there's some guy who used to oppress Christians and persecute Christians. And that guy apparently is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's his point. Paul's point in this paragraph is that he didn't get his gospel from any of the apostles in Jerusalem. He says, again, looking at verse 18, it was three years after his conversion that he first went to Jerusalem and he spent only 15 days there talking with Peter. Now, That wasn't nearly enough time. Two weeks isn't nearly enough time to disciple someone 
in a comprehensive system of Jesus-centered Bible interpretation that this guy is going to go on and preach for 14 years. Right? That's his point. He's saying, the message that I learned is not something that originated with the other apostles in Jerusalem. And then he moves on to a complementary argument in the first few verses of chapter 2. He says, verse 1 of chapter 2, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. There's a little debate. It's a minor debate about where where this 14-year period begins. Did it begin at his conversion? So he's counting three years from his conversion and then 14 years from his conversion? Or is he saying there was three years and then after that period another 14 years? So it's been 17 years since then. Like I said, it's a minor debate. It's mostly debated among Bible geeks. It won't be resolved until we get to glory. Uh, The language allows for either alternative. My conviction is that the 14-year period begins at the same point as the three-year period. So he's saying three years from my conversion and 14 years from my conversion. You are welcome to disagree with me on that. I think what Paul is describing here in chapter 2 happened around 45 AD and uh, is recorded at the end of Acts 11. Again, you can disagree with me, but uh, that's my way of, of sorting through this issue. He says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, he's now checking that his message, particularly with the influential apostles, is what they preach. Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek or a Gentile. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, whether they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. We'll talk about that a little more next week. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. They didn't correct the message I was preaching at all. On the contrary, When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just like Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, or Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. He's referring to the poor in Jerusalem. That's the very thing I was eager to do. If you know from the other parts of the New Testament, Paul is going to spend basically the next decade of his life remembering the poor, raising funds from Gentile churches that he planted to give to their poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. In the verses we just read, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, Paul reminds the Galatians that although his gospel was completely independent of the apostles, 
when he and those who were with him were finally together in Jerusalem and encountered a controversy over whether Titus should be circumcised because he was a Gentile? Did he need to submit to Jewish law? Both Paul and the apostles completely agreed that circumcision was unnecessary for a Gentile like Titus. In other words, even though Paul's gospel was completely independent of the apostles in Jerusalem, it was eventually and completely affirmed by them. Paul is recounting history. The basic message of the passage is the gospel message that Paul preached is from God. And he uses history to support his argument. He says, it didn't originate from Peter. It didn't originate from any of the other apostles in Jerusalem. I didn't learn it by tradition. I didn't learn it by education. It's a message received from the Lord. And years later, it was affirmed that it was the same exact message that all the other apostles were preaching. That's the point. I've focused on the central point to this point in the reading, and from this point on now, I want to focus on eight golden nuggets in the passage that enrich our lives, not just polish it a little bit, but eternally enrich our lives. Think of it now, we're going into this little history that Paul gave, we've gotten the main point, and now we're looking at nooks and crannies of the walls and we're saying there's a gold nugget there and there's a gold nugget there. We're down in the mine shaft. We're doing a little bit of mining, and we're finding significant treasure. The first point, the first golden nugget I want to pull out is from three verses. been meditating on this. This is wonderful. Three verses in chapter 1, verses 11, 16, and 23. Notice in these verses what Paul says he preached. In verse 11, he says it was the gospel that was preached by me. He preached the gospel. Verse 16, Paul explains that God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Him. Look at verse 23. People in Jerusalem were saying about Paul, he's now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Preaching the gospel preaching him, preaching the faith. These are all synonymous expressions. The gospel is a message about him. It's a message about Jesus. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He became human in order to be the one mediator between God and sinful people. Jesus was crucified, bearing our punishment, he rose from the dead, proving that the payment was made in full. And that is the gospel message. It's centered on Jesus, who he is, what he did. And that gospel message is the faith. It is what we must believe, what we must trust. It's what we must keep believing. It is the faith of Christians. I wonder, have you believed you personally have you believed this gospel message about him have you turned from your sin 
Have you trusted Jesus? Have you personally committed yourself to him, saying, I will follow you, Lord Jesus Messiah? I urge you to believe the gospel. The second nugget, the gospel is from God. Worship him. Of course, this is the main point of the passage. As Paul puts it at the end of verse 11, it's not man's gospel. The gospel wasn't made up by people. Just chew on this for a bit. Do you realize that people didn't sit around working out creative brainstorming sheets for how to write this book? It wasn't like Moses sat down and said, how can I create a religion? And then Isaiah said, how can I build on what Moses said? And they sat for years and years, and they worked in creative writing groups. And they put together a new message that built on the old one and that other people after them could build on. That's not how the message came about. It didn't originate with humans. And this is where we all need to be humbled before the Lord. The gospel came from the heart of God. The message about Jesus, the one and only mediator, who can forgive our sin, who can change our hearts, cleanse our guilt, and reconcile us to God forever, raising us from the dead and glorifying us, it came from God. It's his message. People didn't invent it. God authored the gospel because of his grace. He authored the gospel because he wanted to save you. It wasn't because people said, oh, all these humans around here, they're crying out for some hope. we got to give them something. God wanted to save you. He authored the gospel because he wanted to redeem you from sin and death and hell. He authored the gospel because he wanted to cleanse you and remove from you your shame and your guilt. He authored the gospel so that you would know him, so that you would delight in him, so that you would enjoy him forever. Worship God. Third nugget. Since Jesus came, Judaism is a Christless religion. So don't reject Jesus. Look at this nugget, just the term used twice in verses 13 and 14. The term Judaism translated in the ESV. Paul says, verse 13, you've heard of my former life in Judaism. Again, verse 14, I was advancing Judaism. The fact that he is referring to his past in Judaism is significant in terms of even just the history of religions. Within 18 years of the events of the gospel, Christianity is not a sect within Judaism. It's distinct from Judaism. If you take college history of religions class, note this. Within 18 years of the events of the gospel, Christianity is not a sect within Judaism. It is distinct from Judaism. 
Technically speaking, Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Jesus is the only person who ever obeyed the law in letter and spirit. Jesus is the Lamb of God to whom every other sacrifice in Israel's history faintly foreshadowed. Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. Judaism points to Jesus. Judaism is fulfilled in Jesus. And once Jesus came, died, and rose again, to reject Jesus is to be part of a Christless Judaism, a religion that cannot save. To reject Jesus is to be in Judaism, not Christianity. It is to be in a Christless religion that cannot save. You need Jesus to save. Fourth, Paul's conversion is strong proof for the historicity of Christianity. Think about it. I'm not going to spend long here because in recent years I've parked on this point a few times, including this past Easter. But one of the strongest proofs for the historical trustworthiness of Christianity is the fact that Paul, a Pharisee, became a Christian. It's been called the second greatest and second most unarguable fact of Christian history after the resurrection of Jesus. If you're a skeptic, try to explain how Paul, a zealous Pharisee, was converted to Christianity within a year or two of the events of the gospel. As one apologist puts it, how does someone who had no incentive to accept Christian testimony about the resurrection change on a dime, believe it, quickly reorient his whole life around it, and then lose everything teaching it. Explain that one. Think about it. Powerful proof for the historicity of Christianity. Number five, if you're a Christian, it's all of God's grace. Rest in his eternal love and never stop praising him. I get this from verse 15. Paul said there, God set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. Now Paul here is actually echoing the testimony, the personal testimonies of Isaiah and Jeremiah that God called them to be prophets before they were ever born. He had set them apart. And Paul, of course, is referring to his calling to be both a Christian and an apostle, an authorized messenger of this gospel at a critical turning point, at the critical turning point in human history. None of us are apostles. Yet any of us who is a Christian can use the exact same words of verse 15 to describe how we became Christians. If you dig deep down, the reason you are a Christian is because, quote, God set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. A few years later, Paul would write as much to the church in Ephesus, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to be his adopted children to the praise of his glorious grace. Just got to take a deep breath. Christian, you've been loved with everlasting love. Don't let what the Bible says about election bother you 
you're not going to fully understand it. I don't fully understand it. But you need to believe that God is God. You need to believe what the Bible says about his love for you. And you need to praise God that he unconditionally set his love on you before you were born, before he ever made the world and said, I want to save that person. And by grace, he called you. You need to rest in eternal love. God set his love on you and called you by grace. So praise him and rest in him. Number six, Christ's church is invincible. So be committed to it for the rest of your life. I get this from the little word tried in verse 13 and 23. The last words of verse 13, Paul says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. <laughs> Look at the last words of verse 23. The people in Judea are saying, this guy who's now preaching the faith, he once tried to destroy. Paul says twice, I tried to destroy the church. And implicitly he's saying, the church is indestructible. You remember Paul learned this the day of his conversion. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he understood that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is going to win. Of course, this does not mean that no local church will ever close its doors, right? That happens all the time. Sometimes it needs to happen. Sometimes it's grievous when it happens. Sometimes it happens because of horrific persecution like happened, for example, in the Khmer Rouge under Pol Pot in the late 70s in Cambodia, when 90% of the church in Cambodia was exterminated. But Christ's church is invincible. We are going to live, Christian, to see that Christ's church advances in every nation, in every language, and in every tribe. Christ's church is invincible. Gospel-preaching churches throughout the world will never be fully exterminated. So we should commit our lives to Christ's church in our prayer, in our budgets, in our use of our gifts and of our time. Commit yourself to the church until you see Christ. It's invincible. Seven. Personal stories of God's saving grace lead others to glorify God. So Christian, share yours. I get this from verses 23 and especially 24. Paul remembers how around Jerusalem in the early 30s to mid-30s, no one, almost no one knew him by face. If you brought up the name Paul, some people would say, is that the guy I've heard about who used to persecute the church and is now preaching the gospel? And verse 24 says, those people, even just knowing about my story, not even knowing my face, he says, they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of me. Christian, do you know one way to bring glory to God? Tell others how he saved a wretch like you. 
Your story does not have to be as dramatic as Paul's Damascus Road experience. You may or may not have a gory past. You may or may not know the exact date of your conversion. doesn't matter. What matters is that you tell people the story. I was a lost sheep. I was going my own way. And the Lord caused all of my iniquity to fall on him, on Christ. It is by grace that I have been saved. You just need to testify that there was a time when God opened your eyes and you said, Jesus is God. Jesus is the only way. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose again and promises to give eternal life to me if I will follow him. Can you tell that story? Believer, bring glory to God by sharing your story of his grace to you. My final nugget. I could pull many more out of this mine shaft, but I had to suffice with eight. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Paul explains there that these false brothers tried to add to the gospel and persuade Titus to be circumcised. That is, they thought in addition to believing Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he needed to add Jewish law in order to be reconciled to God. And notice how Paul words it in verse 4. Their attempts, he says, it's like they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul here thinks of salvation through the gospel that Jesus graciously offers. He thinks of it as freedom. He's using freedom contrasted with slavery. Of course, Paul is here thinking about freedom from the law, freedom from the law's demands, and freedom from the law's curses. Jesus obeyed all of the law's demands in our place. And to those who trust him, he credits to them, to us, his righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law. And Jesus bore the curse of the law in our place. So for those who take refuge in him, there's no more curse, but only eternal blessing. We're free from the law's demands because of Jesus. We're free from the law's curse because of Jesus. And Paul says anyone who tries to add to the message of the gospel any rules that you have to keep in order to be saved turns freedom from the law into enslavement to the law. To relate to God on the basis of law brings us back under the bondage of sin and death. Now, I want to clarify. Following Jesus involves demands on us, doesn't it? He's Lord. He's Master. It's appropriate for Christians even to think of themselves as slaves to Christ. But we are free in regard to the law's demands and the law's curses. Christians are commanded, keep putting off the old nature and putting on the new. 
Christians are commanded, if you love me, then obey me, keep my commands. Christians are commanded to keep growing more and more in love for God and for one another. The key point is that we don't obey in order to get God to like us or in order to be reconciled to have a relationship with God. That would be enslavement. To think, I need to obey God today in order to get on his good side. No. That's enslavement. You have a relationship with God, Christian, through Christ, through the grace of Christ, gifting to you his righteousness, taking on himself the curses you deserved. To relate to God on the basis of obedience would be to return to enslavement. And just think about it. If you think that you have a relationship with God today on the basis of your obedience, then have at it. Have a relationship with God on the basis of your obedience and see how it goes. It's enslavement. Who wants to live under that standard? Christians, there is freedom in Christ and Christ alone. We don't obey in order to become children of God. We obey God because we've been made children of God by grace. We follow Christ because he and he alone has set us free. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you that in following Jesus, There is freedom from the law, freedom from its demands, freedom from its curses. Thank you, Jesus, for living like we never could and dying to bear the punishment that we would spend eternity trying to pay. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you. I pray that you would keep us today from returning to enslavement. I pray instead that we would rejoice in the freedom that's ours, that we would rest in the eternal love that we've been given by you. I pray, Jesus, that we would never turn from the one precious gospel by which we've been graciously saved. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we would know that nothing can separate us from your love. Jesus, I pray that for every Christian here, you would be magnified in our hearts, in our lives, day in and day out. Be magnified, Jesus. Amen.